The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, seeing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English spelling for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, we begin delving into the tapestry of God's Word, the Bible, by looking at what scripture refers to as types and shadows. In general, we know that scripture gives us a glimpse into God's blueprint and master plan for all creation. It reveals that while we know God created all things from nothing, all things which he created to some degree are representative of realities which exist either in eternity, in heaven, or within the Godhead. Further, rather than this fact being accidental, God has purposely chosen to reveal and manifest these realities to man through various mediums found here on earth. When these instances occur in nature, or the world around us, we generally call them signs, fingerprints of God, or evidence of intelligent design. As we study all of scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. 
We shall also see that ultimately, as within all scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts, minds, and spirits, so that by your grace we would receive and comprehend the richness and fullness of your word. We thank you that you have seen fit to reveal the nature of who you are and what our relationship to you is. We pray that your word would quicken our faith and bring greater depth and fullness to our fellowship with you through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now as we construct the overall framework for our study of types and shadows, we find in the first mention of the subject of types and shadows, which comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, where it says, quote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or of new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, unquote. In reading the above verse, you will note that as the writer mentions the topic of shadows or types, the writer, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, then links the Sabbath to the issue of shadows. Thus, as we discuss types and shadows, we immediately discover that our discussion of the Sabbath, i.e. the day of rest, is precisely on target. Secondly, as earlier theorized, we find that ultimately all types and shadows point to the body, that is to say the substance, which is Jesus the Christ. We find the next mention of types and shadows in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, quote, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a high priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou maketh all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now he hath ordained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises." Unquote. The second verse in question corroborates the theory offered, that many of the temporal things found in the Bible serve as types and shadows for substantive realities found in heaven, in eternity, or within the Godhead. Lastly, we find Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, quote, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they are offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect, unquote. While we began our study of types and shadows in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 clearly shows that God's will and desire to reveal himself goes back to the very beginning of his creation. Hebrews quotes what is probably the quintessential example of types and shadows, which is the tabernacle in the wilderness. As you will recall, beginning in Exodus chapter 25, 
God begins to instruct Moses and to institute instructions regarding how God wanted his people to worship him, as well as details on the tabernacle, which was the edifice where the center of worship would occur. These instructions, laws, ordinances, and commandments were designed to provide the means and method by which God's people would approach God, have a relationship, and be accepted in his presence. Initially, Moses Aaron and God's people understood God's instructions to them as rudimentary rites, ceremony, and observances which man could perform and execute largely by his own efforts which would merit God's approval. As God revealed the details of the construction of the tabernacle, we read at least two interesting comments which deserve attention. Firstly, Exodus chapter 25 verse 9, which says, quote, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so ye make it." Unquote. Secondly, Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, which says, quote, And look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount. Unquote. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, looks back at the same event and comments, saying, quote, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Unquote. In each case, the above passages clearly indicate that God was showing Moses or was telling him about things which were in heaven. These things Moses was seeing were intended by God to serve as a pattern which Moses was instructed to copy. The passages previously cited from Colossians, Hebrews, and Exodus fully support the premise of a direct connection between types and shadows in creation and substantive realities found in heaven, eternity, and or the Godhead. With this in mind, we turn to the subject of the day of rest, also known as the Sabbath, as a prime example of a type and shadow. Scripture reveals that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, light from darkness, the firmament and the waters, the grass, trees, and seeds, the sun, moon, and stars, as well as the creatures in the sea, sky, and land. Last of all, God created man in his own image. Afterward, God looked at all that he had created and declared it to be, quote, very good, unquote. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 continues immediately thereafter and declares the following, quote, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in he had rested from all his work which God created and made, unquote. Now, giving clarity and substance for a type such as the day of rest could perhaps be analogized to trying to remember the notes from a piece of music forgotten long ago. Once the wrong notes from the wrong song start playing in one's mind, it is difficult, if not impossible, to ignore what erroneously clouds the process. Given the reality that man is now beset with sin, we would indeed have to adopt a sound, holistic approach drawn from Scripture in its entirety to discern the truth of the matter. So at the outset, let us begin the discussion with our type with a look at some basic definitions. The title of our episode, The Day of Rest, is a more general alternative to the word Sabbath. 
The first mention of the word Sabbath appears in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, quote, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, unquote. The words, quote, and he rested, unquote, is translated from the Hebrew word Shavath, or Sabbath, which simply means to cease, to rest, or desist from labor. Next, there are the words, quote, rest, and, quote, work, which deserve notice. Now, first, there is the Hebrew word, melaka, which is translated occupation, work, or business. When we look at the English word, work, we find that the typical definition is a man or woman who expends physical or mental energy to perform, produce, or accomplish something. However, as we step back to an overall perspective, we must remember that whatever definitions we assign to define work, we do so largely from our experience post-fall. Because Adam and Eve fell into sin, we do not know what definition of work might have been applied to the word if Adam and Eve had remained in their unfallen state. To illustrate, let's ask the following questions. Would Adam and Eve, or any of mankind, needed to do any work as defined above if they had not sinned? If they did work, what would the work look like? If they were not doing any work, then how would anything get done which would require work? While the above definitions may apply to man, do they apply to God? Can God work according to the same definition as man? If not, in what sense does God work? Until chapter 2 of Genesis, God alone had been working in the sense that he was creating the universe and all that is from nothing. From what God has revealed, although God is triune, he needed no help outside his own nature and Godhead to do anything that he had done. The next word to discuss is the word rest. The English word rest is synonymously defined again from the Hebrew word which we get the English word Sabbath. In looking at the English word rest, we find that if we have correctly defined and understood work, then surely rest is diametrically opposed in definition and outcome to work. Thus, we would conclude rest would be a man or woman expending little or no physical or mental energy to perform, produce, or accomplish anything. Chapter 2 of verses 1 through 3 of Genesis records the first mention of God finishing his work, entering and sanctifying the day of rest. Scripture says that God rested the seventh day because the first six days he was quote-unquote working to finish creation. These verses beg two questions. One, the first question is, what, if any work, were Adam and Eve doing prior to the day of rest? And two, the second question is, if neither Adam nor Eve were doing work, then of what benefit would rest be for them? The answer to either question clearly suggests that for Adam and Eve to appreciate rest on the seventh day, they would have to have been participating in some form of work so that they could then slow down or stop and thereby rest. Having briefly defined and discussed work and rest, we must observe that the two terms, while divergent, are unavoidably connected. Imagine, if you will, a single horizontal scale with a single movable marker attached to that scale. The marker may be moved in either direction as far as desired. 
The moment the marker is moved in one direction to indicate an increase or decrease thereby, there is a resulting proportional decrease or increase in the opposite direction. If we apply the labels work and rest to the opposing ends of our imaginary scale, we find that the more one works, the less one rests. The more one rests, the less one works. The two terms are diametrically opposed. Now that we have a foundational understanding of the basic terms rest and work, we turn to ask the $24,000 question, what is the meaning of the day of rest? Having asked this question, it is crucial to take pause at this point and to remember to put things into proper theological perspective. Theoretically, had Adam and Eve maintained their perfect standing as the image bearers of God, the story would have altered significantly. Prior to the fall, there was no sin. Everything which God created was perfect by his estimation. There is absolutely no hint of anything which is a problem until we come to chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis. It is therefore easy to quickly read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and perhaps simply make the assumption that God took the day off. In reality, this view would be highly anthropomorphic and consequently erroneous. God does not become tired or weary in the way men do. God does not need a day or time off to rest so as to strengthen himself. God remains strong and vigilant, so theoretically God could continue working throughout eternity and never need to slow down or stop for fear of losing momentum or energy. Thus we must conclude that God did not rest on the seventh day or any other day for uh, any of the fleshly carnal reasons which we as humans are required to do for practical purposes. If God does not need to rest, then we must take up the next possibility for consideration. In this scenario, we assume that the reason for this day off was for the benefit of Adam and Eve, uh, or for mankind in general, if you will, recognizing in anticipation that they would need physical rest post-fall. While we must concede that this may have been part of the reason for instituting the day of rest, we must also point out the fact that at this point, when God instituted the day of rest, God had just created Adam and Eve, and the curse of chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 of Genesis had not yet fallen upon man. Consequently, the resultant consequence of Adam working by the sweat of his face to physically survive would not have been in effect as yet. Since all that was created at this point was good and perfect, there would be no effects from fatigue, death, aging, disease, etc. Therefore, neither Adam nor Eve had any physical need as we know it today for a day of rest. Given the fact that sin and its effects was yet to occur, it is entirely possible that had the status quo continued, that Adam and Eve would never know fatigue, weariness, or exhaustion, and thus rest would have been pointless as defined according to the terms offered thus far. At this point we should recognize the fact that the term work has different outcomes between God and man. When God works, his work is always good and perfect. He never gets tired. When man works, if he works apart from God, his work is imperfect and he becomes tired as a result. 
Even if man works with God's help, man becomes tired due to the effects of sin. If the outcome is good, it is only good to the extent that God is involved and not because of any power that man has by his own merit. The central determining factor as to whether man succeeds in accomplishing, performing, or producing something good is God's involvement and his will for the success of the end result. At this point, our discussion has presented five possibilities for God's institution of the day of rest. 1. The day of rest was created to somehow benefit God. 2. The day of rest was created to give Adam and Eve rest before the fall. 3. The day of rest was created in anticipation of the fall and man's need for physical rest due to the future effects of sin post-fall. 4. The day of rest was created simply to memorialize the finalization of creation and gradually turned into a liturgical covenant mandated by law. And 5. The day of rest had or has some practical applications meeting the elements of points 1 through 4 above. However, these are the tip of the iceberg visible as types and shadows representative of another greater substance forecasted at the time of institution. Let's continue in hopes of answering which of the three holds the greatest theological sound merit to the question, what is the meaning of the day of rest? Possibility 1. The day of rest was created to somehow benefit God. Since we know God is omnipotent, we have already eliminated the possibility that God needed rest. While it is possible that God initiated the day of rest in order that he might have opportunity to facilitate receiving man's worship, honor and praise, the counter-argument which prevails says that every day should rightly be a day where man is giving worship, honor and praise. Given this perspective, limiting worship, praise and honor to and or for God to any single day would be highly insufficient for that purpose. Possibility 2. The day of rest was created to give Adam and Eve rest before the fall. First, by examining the text itself, we are reminded that as the sixth day was complete, God had finished all of his creation. Said another way, by the time the seventh day began, there was nothing more to be done by God or man. Everything that could or should have been done was done to completion and perfection. There was nothing whatsoever that God or man could add to what was done to make things better. Secondly, we know that from the context of surrounding scripture that since all was perfect and good, that Adam and Eve were God's image bearers, all that was required was simple faith and trust in God. It was only as a result of chapter 3 of Genesis as it unfolds that Adam and Eve chose to take their unconditional faith and trust off God and place it in their own abilities. Possibility 3. The day of rest was created in anticipation of the fall and man's need for physical rest due to the future effects of sin post-fall. If we make a literal definition of the seventh day as a day of rest purely necessary for some material reason, then we ultimately run into trouble. Once we divorce any spiritual attributes from the day of rest, all we are left with is a 24-hour period ostensibly necessary for rest to maintain some aspect of man's physical or mental health. While rest is very helpful, we know that many people can and do work every day of the week. 
Provided humans get an adequate amount of sleep each day, working all seven days is not automatically fatal to man. Given the versatility and flexibility of man as considered exclusively from a secular work versus rest schedule, we would have to conclude that the day of rest is recommended but not mandatory from a humanistic standpoint. We must attribute some aspect beyond the mere physical aspects in order to give purpose and meaning to the day of rest. Possibility 4. The day of rest was created simply to memorialize the finalization of creation and gradually turn into a liturgical covenant mandated by law. This particular option makes two assumptions, neither one of which provides adequate meaning to the day of rest. As stated previously, Respectfully, this theory seems to imply that the primary or sole reason for instituting the day of rest was little more than God creating for six days and then resting as if God needs a vacation. Secondly, worse off, the second part of this theory that the day of rest just gradually turned into a liturgical covenant mandated by law suggests that there was never any meaning it implies that God lost control and that man simply invented or co-opted some or all of what God initiated. Possibility 5. The day of rest had or has some practical applications meeting the elements of points 1 through 4 above. However, these are the tip of the iceberg visible as types and shadows representative of another greater substance forecasted at the time of institution. As we examine the various possibilities regarding answering the question posed, namely, what is the meaning of the day of rest, we immediately see that clearly the fall weighs heavily on the subject. We know that the fall ultimately was an event which stands or falls upon the issue of faith. Since it was faith, or rather the lack of faith, that changed the dynamic relationship between God and man, we must consider the possibility that it was also faith which was the key and cornerstone to understanding the day of rest. Accordingly, we must ask several questions. A. If Adam and Eve had maintained faith in God, how would that faith have affected the day of rest in the long term? B. Was God intent that he, Adam, and Eve were only going to take 24 hours off to rest? If so, was the plan to return to work in the morning? And C. If God was planning to work again, what would he or anyone else be doing since by God's definition, Scripture at that point indicates that all was finished and very good? We must conclude that, based upon the discussion to date, the definitions in view are highly insufficient. We have been assuming, based upon post-fall conditions, that there is a weekly schedule which was to be repeated by design from the onset of creation. That is to say, we are assuming God intended from the beginning to have six days where he and or mankind would work, and one day where he and or man would rest. Further we would have to assume that God intended this pattern to repeat itself until some undetermined period in time. As an alternative, we would consider the possibility that God worked as declared for six days and was finished, not simply finished for that week, but potentially finished for all eternity. And in other words, had Adam and Eve not sinned, the day of rest might well have been a perpetual, unending state of rest. 
we have also largely been assuming that when we use the terms work and rest that we were referring to acts of physical performance or lack thereof. We must consider the alternate possibility, if not the reality, that what is being discussed by the day of rest was the onset or beginning of living by faith in God's finished work. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 further elaborate on creation, identifying Jesus Christ as the Word who was the agent of creation. Quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men." Unquote. Hebrews begins to give clarity to the issue of entering rest by faith in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which says, quote, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proving me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and saith, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that he should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief." Unquote. As the verses continue, we find direct correlation of the type in question to the substance with chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 of Hebrews, which says, quote, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in therein, and they, to whom it was first preached, entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? 
There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief." Unquote. Notice, if you will, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, recognizes that God rested from his works on the seventh day. Conversely, Adam and Eve almost immediately ate of the forbidden fruit and initiated their own works and efforts towards righteousness rather than simply resting by faith in God's finished work. As long as Adam and Eve maintained faith in God's finished work, they would remain axiomatically at rest by His grace through faith as God's image-bearers. Like our sliding scale from earlier, the moment Adam and Eve moved away from resting in faith in God's grace, they moved toward their own righteousness and corresponding separation from God. More importantly, concerning the substance of our type, the issue of resting by faith in God's grace is not limited to Adam and Eve. The issue is one which looms before all men. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 stands as the type when it declares God was finished from all his works and entered into rest which he sanctified. If Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 is the type, then John chapter 17 verses 4 and 5 is the tie which connects the substance. Quote, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Unquote. John chapter 19 verse 30 stands as the ultimate substance, Quote, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. Unquote. From our study, we learn that God spent six days creating all that is and entered into rest from his works. Adam and Eve had the invitation, ability, and opportunity to rest in God's covering grace as his image bearers by faith. Instead of rest by faith, Adam and Eve chose to work by their own efforts to accomplish being like God. Throughout the next 4,000 years or so, God gave Adam and Eve and all their descendants all of the laws and ordinances which the forbidden fruit ostensibly promised to serve as their schoolmaster. Essentially, God was saying, you want knowledge about good and evil? Here it is. From God's perspective, the law was designed to teach and convict any man who studied and understood it. Once the law was manifest, man was supposed to understand, at least in part, how holy God is, and how unholy and unrighteous man is. In point of fact, rather than trying to so hopelessly to impress God or oneself by adhering to every nuance of the law, Man was supposed to look at the law and realize the impossibility and futility of righteousness based upon his own abilities. Rather than laboring and working on his own merits according to the law, man was intended to cease his works as did God and rest by faith in God's finished work. 
It is possible some will at this point look at John chapter 5, verse 17, in which Jesus says to the Jews, quote, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hereunto, and I work, unquote. At first glance, this verse appears to contradict the idea that God entered into rest. But before we can make a dogmatic statement, we must observe the fact that Jesus appears to be saying that his Father has been working up until this moment that Jesus was speaking, and that he, too, was working. There also clearly seems to be an inference that both Jesus and his Father had some common goal with regard to the work in question. Since God ceased and finished his work on day six and entered into rest, we must conclude that the work of the Father which Jesus refers to must be different in some regard than the initial work of Genesis. I submit that the process can be summarized thus. Creation, rest, restoration. That is to say, there was work on God's part to create the universe and all that is in it. God finished that work, saw that it was perfect, and entered into rest on the seventh day. Although Adam and Eve were perfect and reflected God's image-bearing qualities, they both were given free will and made the choice to labor according to their merits and to achieve their own righteousness. As a result, Adam and Eve separated themselves from the covering of God's righteousness and stood naked by nothing other than their own fallen state. Once the fall began, God entered into the work of restoring mankind to himself. That work, which became necessary at the fall, culminated at the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Given this understanding, we must now forever change the definition of work and rest. If God intended Adam, Eve, or man to work, we see in context that the work intended was to labor, work, remain, or enter into his rest. This seems paradoxically contradictory. However, we see by nature man is forever tempted to depart from God's rest and enter into his own works rather than working to enter into God's rest. Either direction man takes, there is work, but the nature, character, and outcome of the work is different. The solution to placing work and or rest in their proper perspective is found by asking and correctly understanding whose works Jesus spoke to his disciples in John chapter 6 verses 27 and 29 saying quote, labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the son of man shall give unto you for him hath God the father sealed then saith they unto him what shall we do that we might work the works of God Jesus answered and said unto them this is the work of God, that ye might believe on him who he hath sent, unquote. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, comments on the matter this way, quote, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, unquote. Now, sadly, the pulpit, the written word, and the internet are ablaze with the continued theological conflagration over the day of rest, Sabbath day. One camp maintains that the only Sabbath possible is Friday evening to Saturday evening. Another camp argues that Sunday is the true Sabbath given the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. 
In reality, either approach or conclusion ultimately limits the terms and conditions of the discussion to definitions found primarily on a calendar. If, however, we look at the day of rest through the prism of the substance of Jesus Christ, it is possible to better see the type for what it is. The day of rest, the seventh day, or the Sabbath, represents the reality of assuming the spiritual position of resting by faith in Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve had the offer and the opportunity of abiding in fellowship with God as his image bearers by faith in his covering grace. All they needed to do was remain resting in the sufficiency of that grace by faith. Rather than do so, they chose instead to place their faith in the sufficiency of their own knowledge and efforts to equal God's image in nature. In the fullness of time, God remedied the separation created by the fall by taking on the form of a man, Jesus Christ. While God tabernacled in the flesh among us, he perfectly did that work which Adam, Eve, and every human sense is unable of doing. Having done all work, fulfilled all righteousness perfectly and completely, Jesus shed his blood and died to pay the penalty due for our conditional separation from God. Jesus' sacrificial death was totally and entirely satisfactory for all men for all time before God. All that is left for any person to do is to turn from their own efforts and works and labor to enter in and remain in his rest by faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Once we do so, we are covered by his grace through faith as were Adam and Eve covered by the glory and image-bearing qualities of his son Jesus Christ. When we accept this premise, we see then that the day of rest, the seventh day or the Sabbath, is not a 24-hour period. It is not a day of the week to be found on the calendar. It is not a cyclical pattern where we work for a period of time, rest, and then return to work only to endlessly repeat the process until we die. We find in conclusion that the day of rest, or the Sabbath, was an earthly type and shadow which would serve to mirror the eternal and perfected rest found only in the substance which is present via a relationship born of faith in Jesus Christ. Consequently, the correct definition for the day of rest or the Sabbath is to understand that the day of rest is a spiritual state characterized by faith alone, by grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone. If we are not entered into this state of rest by faith through his grace, then we are doomed to endlessly roam about lost in the mire of our own unrighteousness and filthy works without any rest. The only hope is to abandon our own works and by faith enter once and for all into the perfection of his rest by grace through Jesus Christ. The only hope is to positively respond to the invitation given by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30 which says, quote, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Unquote. Once we truly accept this offer and become born from above, then every day is the Sabbath and the 
only labor is to labor moment by moment to remain by faith in His rest. We know now that we are not waiting for any day of the week to stop working and begin rest. Rather, as Romans chapter 8 verse 22 points out, we, quote, know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, unquote, waiting for redemption from the works of our flesh, which is death. Since all men who are in the flesh are now under the penalty of death, we must ask, quote, how can I be saved, unquote? The solution to the question is answered by Paul and Silas to the keeper of the prison at Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. Quote, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Unquote. Father, we pray that if we had not done so already, that today we might by your grace cease from our own works and righteousness to enter into your rest by faith in Jesus and his completed work. We thank you that having entered in by grace into your rest, we once and for all may abide in your rest by that same faith. We thank you that by your power and your spirit, you are able by your grace to bring us unto perfection and completion and unto the fullness and likeness of your Son, Jesus, in whom you are well pleased. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, if you have any questions on God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in